0: 18, Acts chapter 18. The title of the message this morning is The God Who Encourages. And as we walk through Acts chapter 18, which is the wrapping up of Paul's second missionary journey, the beginning of his third missionary journey, and kind of the preparation for a stint in the city of Ephesus, you're going to see that throughout. There are a variety of reasons why people might be discouraged in their faith, discouraged in their work, discouraged with circumstances. And throughout this chapter, we're going to see the Lord at work encouraging his people uh, towards holiness, towards faithfulness, towards mission, uh, towards himself. So we have a lot to cover, and I always go long. So let's go ahead and jump in to our text this morning. Acts chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 1. After this... Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed, and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Let's pray before we go any further. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word, and we pray that we would use this time now to open ourselves up to the power of your spirit, the power of your gospel, and be transformed from the inside out. Help us, Lord, to be encouraged as Paul is encouraged, as the church is encouraged and strengthened. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, surprise, surprise. The first uh, scene, first section, first thing to write down this morning is that Paul was encouraged by God. Uh, The context here is from last week, we were in Athens, right? This intellectual and economic powerhouse of the Roman Empire on the peninsula of Greece. And Paul has been reasoning with the Jews in the synagogue, with the philosophers on the Areopagus, and now he's moved a little bit west to the city of Corinth. Now, some commentators would say that Corinth was the Las Vegas of the Roman Empire. It was a wild city. You think about the Idols in various places. And uh, in Ephesus, there's the temple to Artemis, the uh, Greek divinity. In Corinth, the temple there was for Aphrodite. And so sexual immorality was rampant. In fact, in the early, uh, in the first century and hundreds of years before that, a Greek word was formed to Corinthianize means to engage in sexual immorality. It was a wild place. And Paul finds himself there uh, preaching the gospel, going to the Jews, going to the synagogue. And there he finds two co-laborers and friends, Aquila and Priscilla. They're refugees. I mean, Aquila is originally from Pontus, which is north of Galatia, near the Black Sea, hundreds of miles away. In just a moment, we're going to put a map on the screen, and uh, I'll kind of show you some of these things. Because I think it's helpful for us to get maybe in our minds, where things are placed. But they were in Rome. Okay, yeah, perfect. Awesome. Thank you. So uh, right there at the very top, you see uh, Bithynia and Pontus. That's where Aquila is from. Um, And then when you see Achaia on the left side, that green area, uh, Corinth, it's kind of hard to see, but Corinth is right there near Athens. So that's where Paul is. That's where Priscilla and Aquila are. And originally, Uh, Although Aquila is from Pontus, they were in Rome. They were in Italy. But under Claudius, persecution broke out against the issue related to Crestus. And if you read ancient historical documents from the Roman Empire, it is most likely that the Roman Empire was dealing with Christ. They were dealing with the identity of the Christ. But they heard Crestus, and so that's the name that they were uh, writing down. So, Priscilla and Aquila, originally from Pontus, then in Rome, persecuted and became refugees in Corinth, and now they found Paul, and Paul found them. And it just so happened that they had the same trade. They were tent makers. Maybe your Bible says they were leather workers. Both of those words are very similar. And so they worked together to make a living as they continued to serve and proclaim the gospel. They tried not to be a financial burden to the churches. And so Paul had a trade. He wanted to make a living for himself. But there were times, as we'll see in just a moment, where he did depend on the churches for uh, his financial support so that he could devote his time fully to the work of ministry. Now, as was his custom, Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. And we see here that in verses, um, in verse 5, Paul uh, is joined by Silas and Timothy. They rejoin him from Macedonia And they come, we don't have time to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions that that Timothy and Silas come with a gift, a financial gift from the churches in Macedonia. Most likely, it's the church in Philippi. You can read about this as well in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, But they come with a financial gift that frees Paul up to, as Luke writes here in Acts, to be occupied with the word. Paul realizes, man, I have the encouragement of Priscilla and Aquila, these co-laborers who are doing the same things both in my vocation and in my proclamation. And now Timothy and Silas are coming alongside my brothers in ministry, but they're coming with financial support that the other churches have brought to serve and to fund my ministry. And yet, opposition continued. The opposition was so great that we read in verse six that in many ways, Paul gives up. He says, your blood be on your own heads quoting the prophet Ezekiel, for those who don't listen to the watchman. He says, I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Sometimes it seems after we've been faithful to proclaim the good news, we have to move on to another place. Now, that doesn't mean we give up hope. That doesn't mean we don't ever share the gospel with somebody we've shared the gospel with one time. I mean, Paul is clearly in Corinth for a long time proclaiming the good news over and over and over again. But at some point he says, it will be more profitable for me to proclaim elsewhere to another group of people at another time, at another place. So we too can think about how we might entrust those people or that place in our lives to the Lord and recognize there is more going on than just my faithfulness. There's more going on than my work. And the Lord might lead us to go in another direction just as he led Paul. Now we meet Crispus. And Crispus is the head of the synagogue. And it just seems so providential that after after Paul leaves the synagogue to go proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believes. He believes the gospel. He comes to faith. He and his whole household are baptized. And you can imagine that the conversion of the head of the synagogue put a huge target on Paul's back. Like there wasn't already one there, but now it's even greater. So the Lord saw fit to encourage him directly. You read here, Paul gets a vision from God in verse 9. And this is what the Lord says to Paul. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I'm with you. No one will attack you or to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. In other words, he said, Paul, don't be afraid. There are many reasons to be afraid. There are many reasons to be discouraged. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Keep on sharing the message. Keep on sharing the gospel. Know that I am with you. When you go and proclaim that gospel to people who receive it or don't receive it, I am there every time I am there encouraging you, empowering you, leading you, guiding you. I am with you, and I will protect you. Paul, you've been stoned, you've been beaten, you've been jailed, but I'm telling you right now, you are in my hands. I have you, I am holding you, I am sovereign over your life. I will protect you, and I have many in this city who are mine. What an encouragement. What a massive blessing for Paul, who for weeks and weeks at least has been preaching for the most part to an audience who does not receive him. And so the Lord encourages him, encourages him and says, look, there are many in this city who are mine. So keep on proclaiming the message. Keep on sharing the gospel. The response will come. And that's what leads Paul to stay in Corinth, Luke says, for 18 more months. Now, We've been watching the ministry of Paul for a couple of weeks now in the book of Acts. So 18 months compared to the other places he's been is a long, long time, right? Normally he spends a few weeks, maybe a few months max in a place before being run off or being sent to another place. But he stays here for a year and a half. God gave Paul a word to encourage him. He put friends and workers alongside of him. And he reminded Paul of his own presence with him. And students, you and I, 2,000 years later, as Christians reading God's Word, have those same encouragements right now. We have hardships and sufferings both outside of us, and in us that could lead to discouragement, maybe fears about the circumstances of what's going on in our life, or maybe internal anxieties about who we are and what things are going on in our own lives, or maybe our family's life or the life of our friends and relationships. We can be anxious about tomorrow. We can be anxious about today. But we all have God's Word in front of us. We have God's people around us, and we have God's Spirit Within us. And those three things are constant sources of encouragement, of grace, of power. We have been given access to God through His Word, through His people, and by His Spirit. So we get to enjoy those same encouragements that Paul received in a much more direct way, we get to receive today. Over time for Paul, however, the pressure came to a critical point. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows in Corinth. So let's keep reading in verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews... I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. What a wild story. So, number two, second point this morning, Christianity received a favorable verdict. And we'll explain that here in a moment. It might not seem like a favorable verdict, but it is, right? Gallio was called. Gallio was the proconsul of Achaia. And so, when you remember that map we just had up, that whole green section of the Roman Empire on the left side was Achaia. It was a, a Roman province. And Gallio was the proconsul, he was judge over it. He had a lot of authority, a lot of power. And the Jews, over the last 18 months, have been plotting and scheming and deciding when is the right time to strike Paul. So the Jews became united. They appealed to the Roman government. And this time, instead of saying that Paul's teaching was contrary to Caesar, which is what we saw last week, the Jews said that Paul was leading people to break the law in their worship of God. Now, when we read that phrase, we got to ask the question, what law are we talking about? Are we talking about Mosaic law? Are we talking about Roman law? It's ambiguous. Luke isn't clear about what law he's talking about, and I think that's on purpose. I think the Jews were trying to go to Gallio and say, "Say, the way that Paul is saying to worship God is out of step with what the Roman law allows." Now, back in the Roman Empire. They were, in, they were in a pluralistic society, and there were certain religions that were allowed to exist under Roman rule. Judaism was one of those religions. And so the Jewish leaders were going to the Roman leaders and saying, what he is saying is out of bounds with the law that you have prescribed. You would say that what Paul is saying is against the law. And in one sense, they are right. The gospel of Pharisaical Judaism is a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The religion of Judaism, apart from the Messiah Jesus, is a different religion than Christianity. And yet, Gallio doesn't see a difference, he doesn't see it that clearly. Gallio sees through their argument. And says, you know, if this were actually a real problem, I would devote my time and listen to this case. But this is an intramural debate. This is something for you guys to figure out on your own. And so I'm dismissing the case. And by dismissing the case, Gallio is saying Christianity is not contrary to Roman law. That's a favorable verdict in the Roman Empire. Now, that's not going to um, make Christians immune from future persecution. But Gallio's dismissal of the case against Paul and his gospel is a recognition by Rome that Christianity is not in principle at odds with the empire. And the Jews knew it. And that verdict enraged them. It's why they seized Sosthenes, the new ruler of the synagogue, the one who presumably replaced Crispus, and they beat him in front of the proconsul. I mean, they gathered together. They took the guy who gave their argument, and they beat him in front of the judge. And it says, basically, Gallio didn't care. I mean, he, he wasn't worried about it. So is not a saint. He didn't care about what's right. He cared about what made sense for Rome. And for him, he thought it best not to get involved with this issue between the Christians and the Jews. Now, after this event, Paul continued his work. But Paul is sent from Antioch, we remember. He was the missionary from the church in Antioch. And so he decides to head back. Look at verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Third point, the church needed to be strengthened. The church needed to be strengthened. Even though Paul is on his way home, the churches that he helped plant are consistently on his mind. And the movement of Paul out and back, out and back, out and back to Antioch reminds us that Paul does not see himself as a lone ranger Christian or a lone ranger missionary, but one sent by a local church and ultimately accountable to that church. So he headed to the area of Syria. If we can put the map back on the screen, just so that we get that this makes sense. He's in Achaia, right? He's on the green side, and he travels by boat all the way to Syria, which is where Israel is on the other side of the map. That's hundreds and hundreds of miles. So in just one or two verses, Luke is cramming in many, many weeks of travel, all right? Now, in Asia, he stops where Ephesus is in Sincre and spends a little bit of time there. Now, Luke mentions that he's under a vow. He cut his hair because he's under a vow. This is almost certainly a Nazarite vow that you can read about in the book of Numbers and other places in the Old Testament. And the details aren't there. Why was Paul under a vow? What was he under a vow about? How long did it last? We don't know. Paul or Luke doesn't tell us. But the idea that Paul keeps his Jewish traditions intact is what's in front of us. Just because Paul was a Christian did not mean there wasn't any value in the practices of Israel that he grew up with. And there's a similar principle for you and me with our cultures and our communities and our traditions. When we come to Jesus, we don't just erase our backgrounds. We get redeemed. And so there may be things and practices that you and I do that aren't necessarily explicitly called for by uh, the New Testament that you might find actually like, real value in. I'll give you an example. Um, When I find myself cloudy, like not thinking clearly, um, it's sometimes really helpful to like get outside and go for a walk. Now you're not going to find like a chapter and verse that says, you know, when your thoughts are unclear and you're not able to see reality rightly, get outside and go before the Lord and his creation and walk at least two miles and then you'll be good. But that doesn't mean there isn't any real profit to that. And in the same way, Christians aren't required to give and to keep Nazarite vows like the Jews of the Old Testament were called to do. But that doesn't mean Paul can't use that as a real profitable and beneficial practice for his own faith. We get to redeem many things. Now, Paul ends up in Ephesus and starts a church there. He goes to the synagogue, reasons with them, and they believe him and they want him to stay. They're like, Paul, please stay with us and help us start this church. He says, no, I'm on the way to Antioch. I will not stay. But he says, if the Lord wills, I'll come back. If the Lord wills, I'll come back. That reminds us that Paul's mission is not Paul's mission. Paul's mission is where the Lord calls him to go. And in the same way for you and me, our lives are not our own as Christians. We can make plans. We can have desires. We can have dreams. And those things are fine. But ultimately, we see the example of Paul and think, Paul is led by, ultimately, not his desires, not his dreams, but the Spirit of God. He lays those things at the altar of God and says, God, do what you will with these things. It would seem really good for Paul, right? To stay in a place where he's wanted. I mean, throughout this second missionary journey, he's been run out of towns. He's been attacked. He's been jailed. And so for a a group of Jewish believers who come to faith and say, Paul, we want you to stay, that would really be enticing. And yet Paul says, no, not yet, not now. He heads to Syria, to Caesarea, and it says in the text, uh, he went up. So look at verse 22. 22. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. That language of up and down makes it most likely that Paul went to Jerusalem. So where Jews go up is to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is on a mountainside. And so when he went up to strengthen the church or to to meet with the church, he went up to Jerusalem and then he went down to Antioch, his home church. But notice in verse 23, after some time, he went back out on his third journey strengthening the disciples. The point for us here is that we as the church and as believers cannot merely rest on past experiences and achievements to sustain us. We must continually be living before the Lord and abiding in Him. And from our side reading this text, we see Paul as the means of God's grace to these churches. Like Paul was God's gift to these churches to come and encourage and pray for and visit and strengthen and teach and more. We've already mentioned God's word, God's spirit, and God's people as means of encouragement that God gives to all of us. But I pray that you have someone or multiple people in your life who are being used by God to strengthen and encourage you specifically. This is one of the gifts of intentional discipleship. Of meeting in a close-knit group of people. Maybe it's one-on-one, maybe it's two or three people or four people together. But one of the gifts of intentional discipleship is a regular means of strengthening and encouraging one another. And Paul is able to do that in a large measure as an apostle and as a missionary. But you and I have access to that here in the life of the church. And so if you're not being discipled, I really, really encourage you to pray and consider how you might find someone. You can ask me, you can ask Rachel. We would love to connect you with somebody who would love to walk alongside you and be that source of encouragement from the Lord to you. Now, while Paul is making his rounds, we see he, he gets up and leaves. He goes to Galatia, to Phrygia, starts strengthening the churches once again on now his third missionary journey. Luke is gonna pivot and shift his focus back to Ephesus, which will set us up for our time, uh, our next time in Acts when we get to chapter 19. So let's finish the chapter and land the plain. Verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. All right, last bit of encouragement for Paul and for us. Number four, more believers joined the mission. More believers joined the mission. We met Priscilla and Aquila at the beginning of our text. And now we meet Apollos. Apollos is on the scene, a convert from Alexandria, from northern Egypt. And although he knows Jesus and is fervent in spirit, Luke says, he has much to learn. He's full of zeal and has some knowledge, but being gifted and being accurate are different things. And many of us have various gifts and talents that God has gifted us for the common good and for the good of his church. But that doesn't mean we will always be right or use those gifts rightly. All of us can have zeal in our faith and that's wonderful, but what we must strive for is zeal in accordance with the knowledge of the truth. And that's what Priscilla and Aquila, by God's providence, were in Ephesus for. They heard Apollos preach. And they heard Apollos preach good things, right things about Jesus. But all Apollos knew was As far as John the Baptist, he knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. He knew that that John was the, the forerunner and Jesus was the one to come. But Priscilla and Aquila had heard more. They had heard from Paul they had heard about the coming of the holy spirit on the day of pentecost they'd heard about the forming of churches all around the roman empire they had heard about paul's missionary endeavors and his gospel proclamation according to the scriptures so they heard apollos preach but they knew he needed some correction and some guidance and for apollos and for the church in ephesus that is a wonderful gift i need that as a teacher of god's word I need to surround myself with people who can help me more accurately understand and teach the truth of God's word. I have fellow pastors who know a lot more than I do about the Bible. I have commentaries of biblical scholars and preachers and theologians who have looked at the text and studied and studied and studied and give insight to what the text says and means. There are other staff members and more to help me understand and teach the faith boldly and accurately. And the good news for you and me is that we live in a golden era of access to biblical knowledge. I mean, there is so much good, solid stuff, freely accessible to you and to me to help us understand the truth of God's Word and the core doctrines of our faith. So don't waste it. This is a wonderful time to surround yourself with godly counsel, a good time to dive into God's Word and find a good commentary or a good study Bible and and learn and think and study and look at the book so that you might see God there. Now, Apollos heads to Achaia. It says here that Apollos was in Ephesus. We'll put the map up one more time. And so you see what's going on here. So right in the middle where it says Asia, the, the red spot in Ephesus, that's where Apollos is. And he wants to go to Achaia. He goes back the way that Paul went to Corinth. He goes to the church in Corinth. Now, why does he do that? To do the same thing that Paul was doing on the other side of the empire in Galatia and Phrygia. To strengthen the church. To help them to grow in grace. To teach and to lead and encourage them. And here's the interesting thing to consider as we kind of land the plane this morning. Paul probably has no idea that Apollos is going to Corinth right now. I mean, Paul is on the other side of the empire doing the same thing, praying and asking God, Oh God, would you encourage the church of Philippi? Would you surround them with godly leadership? Would you be gracious to them? Would you pour out your spirit on the church in Corinth? Would you encourage them and keep them faithful? All the while, Priscilla and Aquila are getting ready to send out Apollos to do that very thing. Here's the point. While you are working and being faithful and sharing the gospel and growing in grace, you have no idea who else God is using and what else God is up to. He is always working in way more ways than we are aware of. And that should give us great encouragement when things seem bleak. Paul doesn't know that God is at work In these ways, he trusts him, but he doesn't know. And when we see Paul, Apollos' ministry, we can find that same encouragement that although we are being faithful, we are not alone in our faithfulness. God has brought other people alongside us to be ministers of the gospel in our community and to the ends of the earth, whether that's here within Lakeview or sister churches in our community or churches all around the world. We also see in Apollos' ministry, the work of apologetics. It says at the very end that he was powerfully refuting the Jews in public. He was defending the faith that the Christ is Jesus in a way that was hard to argue against. And that's an encouragement for us to be prepared, as Peter says, to make a defense for the hope that's in us with gentleness and respect. Do you know why you believe what you believe? Apollos did. Paul did. And their their example should be a model for us as well. So God was at work then to strengthen and encourage his people, and he is at work now. And I pray that in our remaining time, you might think about how God might use you both to encourage the church and to spread his glory. These are the examples that we've seen. I pray that's the encouragement that we receive.